there's always a lot of misconceptions around it and there's always a lot of understanding that's still needed so I'm always really happy to have those conversations. Hi I'm Brooke Melhouse. welcome to Disabled and Proud the podcast that does exactly what it says on the tin. Each week the show highlights an awesome disabled guest speaking about their own disability, why they're proud to be disabled and why they're proud to be themselves. Ali, welcome to Disabled and Proud. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you, Brooke? Yeah, I'm, g- I'm glad that we've managed to get here and get sorted. <laughs> and like this morning is over. So that's that's good in my eyes. Absolutely. Onwards and upwards from here. Exactly, exactly. I'm really looking forward to today. I think I'm going to learn a lot, as I do with every single one of my podcasts. But I think particularly I'm going to learn a lot more than what I usually would. So I'm really looking forward to this chat and what we're going to speak about. Excellent. I'm very glad to hear that. I hope I don't disappoint. (laughs) So the first question that I like to ask every single guest is, how do you refer to your disability? So I say that I am autistic. Um, I will never say that I have autism because um, it's not something that you can separate from the person with it being a neurological disability. Um, And I do identify as disabled. There are a fair number of autistic people you'll probably find who won't identify with that label uh, and who prefer to either just use that they're autistic or they'll say that they're neurodivergent. Um, which I also use as well. Yeah. Um, but thinking about the kind of social model of disability, I would definitely identify with that. I think what you said just then about how you can't separate autism from the person is actually very, very interesting because I think a lot of people like to almost try and separate the two. Like on the one hand, you you can have autism, but you're you don't follow necessarily the quote-unquote like most common traits for autism whatever that is and I think it's so interesting that actually what you said is that you you can't because it's neurological well exactly I think that you know we we can't get too philosophical about what makes a person a person and souls and all this stuff however um if we think about the fact that um you know your brain plays a very big role in that and that your brain changes over time and this in turn changes who you are as a person over time. The fact that um, being born autistic is due to a neurological difference, a difference in your brain, um, I feel like it's very difficult. Uh, A lot of people that I spoke to, um, I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but a lot of people I spoke to when I wrote my book and I interviewed for my book, Um, said that they found some of the questions I asked them difficult because they couldn't separate themselves from being autistic. Um, And I definitely feel that way personally. I think I would not be able to tell you which aspects of myself and my personality, which aspects of myself are because I'm autistic or a combination of the two. Oh, that is like... That's so interesting for someone who obviously doesn't identify as having like any neurodivergence whatsoever. I always find it incredibly interesting to have these conversations because the thought patterns and the way our brain works are different. And there's like, they are different because they're wired up different. And obviously when you talk to someone who thinks differently from you, I always find that fascinating because it's obviously very different from my day to day. Yes. And your day to day will be very different to my day to day. So I find this whole conversation incredibly interesting. (laughs) 
It's so true. And I think for me, especially like when I'm talking to friends or family members um, or even just, you know, random people that I meet and they're like, oh, that's really interesting. Can you tell me more about that? Uh Um, There's always, as you mentioned, when we first started recording, there's always a lot of misconceptions around it. um, And there's always um, a lot of understanding that's still needed. So I'm always really happy to have those conversations Um, But trying to explain how my day-to-day is different from other people's day-to-day can be challenging because I don't know any different. I don't know what you're going through and you don't know what I'm going through. So it's very difficult to meet in the middle and identify where those differences are. Yeah, of course. And, And for you, obviously autism requires some form of diagnosis. And I was wondering... And this is only because I know that females being with uh, being diagnosed with autism tends to come later on in life. It's not yeah. necessarily something you're diagnosed with as a child because in in everyone's brain, which is wrong, that the idea of autism is a naughty white boy in the class who's like throwing bricks at you. Like that is like the very stereotypical, oh, he's yeah. autistic model that everyone if you don't necessarily fit into that mold it's like oh you can't really have autism then and I was wondering because of you know you're a female where was your diagnosis where was that process for you how did it all happen for you yeah so I'm a classic late diagnosed female we're just going to get a little dog's head in the corner there she turns herself around we love that (laughs) welcome (laughs) she's like I will make my appearance in this podcast um yeah so my diagnosis didn't come until I was 23 um and it happened just before the pandemic so I actually had like a couple of years to come to terms with it where life was very autistic friendly and I think you'll find that's what a lot of autistic people um especially in the UK will say thinking about obviously we have to recognize that the pandemic was a really really challenging time for many many people um but for those of us who need a lot of downtime who need a lot of time away from people who need very fixed routines like not Mm. being able to leave your house except to do certain things is like the most exact routine you can possibly get (laughs) so um that was a really really transformative time for me in a very positive way um, because I was able to to learn more about myself um, and how to look after myself etc etc but going back to your to your question um I first came across the notion that I might be autistic um in women's health magazine so wow it's quite cool isn't it it's quite a cool origin story um but I was reading women's health magazine and there was an article in there um a feature that had been written by a late diagnosed autistic woman Mm -hmm. who throughout her kind of teenage and young adult years had been told that she was just anxious that she was just depressed um they were on um, medication um and it wasn't until much later on that she discovered that the kind of traits that they had diagnosed that for uh-huh. were actually autistic traits, specifically how it presents in females. Um, mm-hmm. I was reading this article and I was just like, that's me, tick, tick. <laughs> um, and what was really challenging about that revelation yeah. is 
my mum worked in a special needs school all of my childhood with autistic kids. Wow. Yeah. So we've we've had conversations about it and we've been like, why do we think that she never kind of recognised that in me? She yeah. was surrounded with it all day. Um, and that was the conclusion that I, that I personally have kind of come to is uh. that when you are surrounded by it all day, it's normal. And if you come home yeah. to it, as well, it's normal. And so you don't necessarily think I shouldn't be coming home to that. It, that's my theory. Yeah. Anyway. No, but that, that does, it does make sense. It makes a lot of sense because so outside of what I do with this podcast is I work with adults who have some form of learning disabilities, whether it be mild to profound and autism is obviously included in that category. And actually I was thinking then, I was like, that is so true because my day to day is working with disabilities and then I'm disabled. So then I, f- I forget regularly that being disabled and disabilities are not the norm because they're normal in my life. Like it's my day to day. It's my lived reality. And it's the people that I work with. It's their lived reality. So when I step out and I'm socializing with friends who aren't disabled, I'm like, oh, that's really weird. Like I completely forget that like I might be the odd one out. I'm like, no, it's you guys. It's not me. (laughs) So actually that does make a lot of sense. And like, I kind of love the fact that you read, you were reading about it in Women's Health. And that was like, oh, like maybe this is me. (laughs) It's just not what you expect, you know. You don't expect to pick up Women's Health and have like a life transformative experience. Yeah, exactly. Um, But yeah, so after reading that, I was like, well, what am I going to do about this? Mm -hmm. And as um, any autistic person will tell you, the first thing you do is a lot of research. So I did lots and lots of research into um, being autistic, specifically being autistic as a woman, uh, Uh the kind of like coping mechanisms that that autistic people use to deal with. um, You'll know this really well, you know, like sensory overwhelm, social situations, that kind of stuff. Um, And for a little while, I just implemented those coping mechanisms in my life. So rather than necessarily... um, look for a definitive answer I wanted to do an experiment on myself um yeah to see like where you would lie exactly so I did it and I couldn't believe how much better I felt in myself implementing these things um like little things just like getting a pair of ear defenders so that if the world got too loud I could put my ear defenders on and not have to deal with it it was it's like that that can cost you know 10 15 pounds but it can make an incredible difference um and so after a while of implementing these strategies I was like right well it's clearly really obvious I am definitely (laughs) autistic so I went to the doctor and I presented them with all my research and I was like this is why I think I'm autistic um can I get referred for for an assessment um I was incredibly lucky and I always acknowledge um, my kind of fortune in this situation because I got seen within six months. Oh, that was really quick. Yeah. And I tell people that and they're like, gosh, that must be really annoying to have to wait for so long. And I was like, some people can be waiting years, three years, four years, five years, more just to get seen. And I got seen within six months. So 
Wow. Then I got my diagnosis and, and now it's official. Although I think it's really important to caveat that we're in the autistic community. Um, we are very open and welcoming to people who self-diagnose simply because it is yeah. so difficult to get access to that formal diagnosis. Yeah. Um, and it's not hurting anybody, is it? At the end of the day, if you yeah. if you identify with that and you find that those coping mechanisms and those strategies make a big difference for you, then you want to be in a community of people who understand what it's like. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's been a roller coaster experience in every sense of the word, but very rewarding as well. I love the fact that you were able to be seen so quickly because I know I know of a lot of people who have had to wait years and years and years. And a diagnosis for autism isn't easy, and particularly with more awareness surrounding female autism as well, because it presents incredibly differently between males and females. I think that the fact that you got seen so quickly is is kind of remarkable, actually. Yes. nobody really gets seen that quickly and and I can completely understand why as a community you accept and like you're very accepting of the idea of self-diagnosis because clinical diagnosis can take forever especially yeah. if you're not a small white boy chucking bricks at the back of a classroom because yeah. they tend to push that through quite quickly to be like yeah there's your diagnosis now in the nicest kind of way fuck yeah. off <laughs> like move on yeah <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's the other thing to really acknowledge is that the support for people, especially for adults, once you get that diagnosis, is non-existent and you yeah. have to find it yourself. You have to find that community yourself. You have to find those, you know, uh, saying things, you know, like getting ear defenders to help me cope with noise because I'm really noise sensitive. Uh-huh. Um, that's that's not something that a professional ever told me to do that was something that I researched online and I saw lots of people with who are autistic doing Mm -hmm. on social media and I was like well if it works for them maybe it'll work for me Mm -hmm. honestly I think it's incredible but interestingly because you were diagnosed and I don't want to say late because there are people who get diagnosed in their like 40s yeah what was it like for you growing up and like with school particularly because for you it must have been like challenging but in challenging in a different way because you 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 don't I obviously I don't know and I'm completely assuming yeah. so completely correct me if I'm wrong but I can imagine from what I know of autism is that at school you were either a massively high overachiever or you always underperformed at some level yeah so I fall into the overachiever camp yeah. um and it's really funny because I look back on my childhood and obviously that is predominantly dominated by you know schooling experience and experience with peers and that kind of stuff um and I was pretty miserable I had a pretty miserable time of it and I always feel a little bit resentful of that or a little bit Mm. kind of like a bit basically when I got my diagnosis one of the first processes I had to go through was grieving because I had to grieve for the childhood that I'd lost that I could have had with the right support if I'd got my diagnosis earlier. It's almost Um, like you've been cheated out of a childhood. A hundred percent. And I feel it's really difficult to say that. And I haven't been comfortable saying that for a long time simply because I don't want, you know, I don't want my family to listen to this and to Uh think that, 
I'm saying negative things about my experience with them. It's more the fact that the overall experience when you put everything together and the difficulties that were faced was more negative than positive. Um, But yes, so I was a classic overachiever in school. I always got really good grades. um, And so it's always interesting for people when I say that I hated school because they assume that people who are this kind of academic intelligent um, and who do well um, academically must love school. They must really enjoy it. Um, And I always go to correct people and I say, I love learning. I absolutely love learning. I still pursue learning every day in my adult life. Um, But the school environment is not built for autistic kids. It's not built for neurodivergent kids. It's just, yeah, a really, I'd go far, as far to say it's like a traumatising experience, yeah. to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Well, but that comes back to the whole idea, and it's not an idea, and I only say idea because it's it's how, like, in my, my words I'm trying to formulate it, but actually the school system is not set up for neurodivergent brains. And, like, as we've already covered, like, your brain is set up differently to my brain. So my brain did quite well in school, like, didn't necessarily love it all the time, but like I did well. Like I wasn't necessarily like the top grade. I wasn't also the bottom. I was somewhere in the middle, but that was more because I couldn't be asked, not because I didn't yes. have the talent. Whereas actually your brain works very differently. So for you, that environment wasn't necessarily like a, a good one or a safe one or somewhere where you felt like you could flourish and you didn't have the support unknowingly you didn't know that you needed it but you didn't have the right support in places that was going to make that experience more comfortable for you it's almost exactly. like trying to match colors so like I'm a blue person so I fit into like the blue room but you're a yellow person and being in the blue room makes you feel uncomfortable yeah yeah that's a really good analogy actually and I think you know there were times when I would run out of the blue room. So, I mean, I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression when Mm -hmm. I was around, I want to say 15. Um, I I had a breakdown. I missed months and months of schooling. Um, And when I went back, they put me, um, or should I say they gave me the option of accessing, um, we called it the bridge in my school. Um, and it was basically a space for people who struggled in lessons uh-huh. to have a safe space to escape to. Um, and, you know, th- there was never the expectation that you would spend all of your time in there, but it was there for you. If there was a particular lesson that you couldn't go back to, or uh-huh. if you were transitioning to coming back to school after um, a long period of time away, which is what I was doing. Um mm-hmm. And that facility had been there since I joined at 11 years old, but I only accessed it then. Uh And if I'd had access to it the whole time, it would have been a very different story. Yeah. It would have been a complete game changer for you. Yeah. Interestingly, so you got your diagnosis at age 23. Yeah. And so that's kind of around about the time, particularly in the UK where you're kind of like you just left school you might have gone to uni you're now kind of in the working world and I was wondering what did your career path and how did you do what you do now how did that all kind of accumulate and come together for you 
So when I left university, I went to university um, and studied theology. Um, oh, nice and heavy. Super niche. Um, and there's not much that you can do with a theology degree from an obvious perspective. I absolutely uh-huh. loved my degree and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, but when I came out, I was like, well, I'm either going to become a priest or a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I'm not personally religious, so I became a teacher. Um, <laughs> I lasted four months. Okay. It was awful because not only is the school environment not built for neurodivergent kids, it, mm-hmm. it's not built for neurodivergent teachers either. Yeah. Um, and at the time, because um, this is fresh when I left university, I hadn't even hadn't even read that women's health article yet. Yeah. Um, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And pretty quickly realised that it was the wrong thing um, for me. Yeah. Um, and after that, I went back to university to do a master's degree um because academics is something that I've always excelled at so when everything fell apart I was like well I know I can do that so yeah (laughs) I'll go back and do that again so um and interestingly so I went to the University of Oxford to do my master's degree oh just a casual drop there she's actually really effing clever (laughs) well what I was going to say is that the University of Oxford has a lot of autistic people in it um and I think that will come as no surprise to anybody because um as you kind of referenced earlier in the podcast when you think about autistic people you think about the two ends of two ends of the spectrum but I don't like to use that anymore but we'll go with it because I can't think of anything better right now in terms of you think of autistic people who have learning disabilities as well um and who can't access education the same way and who need support um to live and and that kind of thing and then you think about rain man (laughs) and you think about autistic people who are incredibly intelligent academically yeah um but have absolutely no street smarts whatsoever and i fall into that camp i am academically intelligent but I've got no street smarts. I've got no common sense. None yeah. of that. I get absolutely made fun of by my my partner and my family for the fact that my common sense is non-existent. Um, yeah. But going into an environment like Oxford was a revelation because I was surrounded by people like me, uh-huh. either who weren't diagnosed and weren't interested in getting diagnosed because they're academic success had led people to accept them they were just like oh he's just a bit quirky he's a bit eccentric like that's the kind of vibe that you get at Oxford so it's like normal he just really loves classics or whatever else that people are doing um or you get a room full of people who have defined their entire personality by their academic success and who are actually mental health wise really really struggling and Uh, then you have that conversation where you're like because this was when I was exploring that I might be autistic yeah so I'd be having conversations with people being like oh yeah so this is the reason why I think it and they'd be like I do that too that's me yeah I like that as well so um 
yeah that was a that was a really interesting experience I really enjoyed my time there but unfortunately the pandemic hit during my second term um so I had to do my third term which is when I was writing my dissertation uh from I moved in with my partner and that was in lockdown um so I didn't get that full university experience um and that that the kind of lockdown period was when I really as I said before you know I really got to know myself better I really got to know what I need in order to thrive yeah but also when I threw out the window these notions of I have to do what other people expect of me in order to be successful yeah Um, and that's when I started really throwing myself into my writing um and that's when I approached my publishers and said I have an idea for a book and this is what I want to write and will you publish it and they said yes and that's kind of what led to us connecting as well yeah and I'd love it if you could talk a bit more about your book and and like what it's about without giving like too much away if you can because I think like being being able to use the pandemic as a positive experience for you is incredible because so many people did not have that experience with the pandemic but being able to like you said like explore your needs what helps you thrive during that time it's like it's invaluable because it was what two two and a bit years still kind of going on kind of so like (laughs) nearly three years of like being able to really fully almost understand yourself on a different level where you haven't been able to have that before because actually the world was doing nothing and you were given that almost like breathing room to find that out and you know like you said start writing and and develop what you've developed now yeah um exactly I mean I think you've really hit the nail on the head with with your description there that breathing room is what I needed and it's what I'd never had um so for me I'm very very lucky um, that the pandemic was that positive experience for me. Yeah. Um, and the book that I proposed to my publishers is called The Autistic Guide to Adventure. Um, yeah. And it's coming out on the 21st of April, 2023. Um, and you can actually pre-order it already in all good bookstores. Um, so that's very, very exciting. Um, but as a kind of taster of what's, what's involved in there what's in that book um it's a it's a guide it's a handbook of 35 different activities for autistic young people um Mm -hmm. children um to access from their own kind of perspective um so we've got everything in there from archery to mudlarking to stargazing to wild swimming um and a little bit in there as well about kind of my experience of of being late diagnosed and what that means um and also a little little manifesto at the end for people to take away and hopefully sign on to which is really exciting um but the book came about because growing up um I really struggled to access the outdoors so I I was very fortunate. I had a very outdoorsy family. You know, my grandparents would take us hiking. My parents would take us camping. I did have opportunity uh, to do those things. Um, And I have a younger brother as well who 
is extremely active and outdoorsy and adventurous and I grew up really envying him because he could just throw himself into anything yeah um, and normally make like a really good job of it as well <laughs> um, and I would look at that and I'd be like oh, wish I could do that but there was always some barrier stopping me yeah um, and I ended up having the majority of my adventures through the pages of books mm-hmm. um, which I would highly recommend I still do that now um however there's a point where you think I want to have this in my life like I want to be the person who goes out and does something new um yeah and does something that I never thought I could and it wasn't until I got my diagnosis that I was like oh okay well clearly there are sensory issues involved here clearly there are social dynamics involved here um and also just being able to access information that very clearly explains from start to finish what happens when you do something, which yeah. sounds so basic. Um, but for people who can't make the leap between steps, you need to spell out what happens along the way. Um, and there was no resource like that when I was younger. Um, Cause yeah. maybe if I'd read that, I would have been like, Oh, Makes that sense. <laughs> um, and there was no resource like that when I looked for it. How many years ago was it now? Yeah, 2020. Um, so I wrote it. Um, that's what they say, isn't it? They're like, if you can't see something that you think you need or you think other people need. Well, that's exactly how this came about. So like, I'm completely with you on that train. Like, I think if you can't find it and you want to create it, then you should do it yourself. Big, big fan of that big fan of that that's our advice by the way <laughs> Ali and Brooks say if you've got an idea and you don't see anybody else doing it do it now yeah 100% absolutely 100% with you on that 100% yeah so it's incredibly exciting because yeah. it took so it took me 18 months to write from start to finish yeah uh, and there are interviews in there that I alluded to earlier from mm-hmm a range of fabulous autistic people from all over the world. Um, We've got people from the US, people from New Zealand, um, and the interviews with them are about their own experiences because I think as we've touched on, every autistic person is different and I can only speak from my own experience. Um, And also, as much as we kind of, um, what's the right way of saying this? We kind of speak ill of these white, naughty, autistic boys who get their diagnosis so easily. Uh-huh. Um, but I wouldn't want to exclude them because they, they are still part of the community. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they do still struggle. They just get recognised a lot easier than the rest uh-huh. of us. Um, but I wanted to make sure that the book had voices from people from all walks of life and all different yeah. experiences as well. Yeah. And I think that that's really crucial. The point that you just made about every autistic person being completely different, because that's also true for every disabled person is that you could have two people with the exact same diagnosis on a piece of paper and how they relate to how they talk about how they feel about how their disability affects their life is going to be completely different. Yeah. Completely individual to that person. And you're, you're right about, you know, those naughty white boys still do struggle, but they're also still a part of your community. And like, 
as annoying as they might be, they still <laughs> need the help too. Yeah, yeah. Everybody deserves support. And I think what what we're talking about when we kind of promote this discourse around black people being diagnosed um, less and females being diagnosed less and working class people being diagnosed less. It's just to make sure that all voices are heard rather than to squash the voices that are already there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Oh, I love that. So, <laughs> I like to ask everyone if they have a piece of advice for a younger version of themselves, so a younger version of Ali, but yeah. also for a younger person with the same disability as you. And these don't have to be the same pieces of advice. Don't feel pressured yeah. to like homogenize one piece. <laughs> I think my advice to my younger self would be to stop pretending to be someone that I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of... I th- it's almost a universal experience but I think especially for a lot of autistic females the reason why we don't get recognized is because we're so good at masking yeah Um, for those who aren't aware of what masking is it's where you watch the people around you and you kind of absorb their mannerisms and the way they speak and the ways they behave in order to make yourself more palatable to wider society um and I mean I wasn't particularly successful because I got bullied a lot at school so clearly they were like picking up on the she's not like us uh kind of vibes but I I was desperately trying for Mm -hmm. so so long and I would just tell her to give it up (laughs) do you know what I mean like I think I'm so much happier now that I'm true to myself my interests even if people think that they're a bit weird um and my just being honest about the way that I think about things and the way that I behave and don't change yourself for other people you know that's the universal piece of advice um but I think my advice for anybody um with the same disability as me, especially those in their kind of childhood and teenage years, is try and find the things that make the world easier for you. Mm-hmm. Um, because as I said earlier, you know, something as easy as ear defenders can make a phenomenal difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not the same for everybody because not every autistic person is noise sensitive. That's just what I struggle with. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, my advice would be to to just experiment and to try different uh, coping strategies and support mechanisms. And when you find what works, use it every day because it will make such a big difference um, to your well-being, your mental health, your happiness. Yeah. And I think that finding what works for you, particularly as we're talking about neurodivergence, finding what works for you and finding those coping mechanisms can literally be game-changing for you. It can almost revolutionise what once seemed incredibly difficult to actually a very manageable task. And I think yeah. we, and I'm, I'm classing myself as non-neurodivergent here and, and I'm talking about like the wider sense of communities that sometimes I think we don't necessarily understand how difficult some mm. things can be because to us, as we've said, like our brains aren't wired the same. So 
you know, not being able to sit in a room full of noisy people, for some people, they won't understand why that is so difficult for someone who is very, very noise sensitive. But actually finding the coping mechanisms, God, that was a bit of a struggle to get out, wasn't it? (laughs) Tongue twister. Finding the coping mechanisms that work for you and being able to use them and implement them so that things that like for me don't seem that difficult but making them palatable and manageable for you is is absolutely revolutionary because we are in a world that is not set up for disabled people we are in a world that is not set up for the neurodivergent we are not set up in a world realistically that doesn't cater to the slim white version of people that is like pretty much where we're at and so being able to make the world more palatable for you however that may be is incredible because change comes about very, very slowly and being able to make it change internally is way better than trying to fight the forces to make it change externally. That's not to say that your fight externally isn't valid. It absolutely is valid, but making something work for you internally and making you feel at peace with yourself and with the world is a goddamn step better than trying to put yourself into a situation where you're going to be uncomfortable just for the sake of fitting in to this wider rhetoric that we that we currently have absolutely and I think that's such an important point is that not everybody has to change the world but everybody can change their own lives and I think that it's okay to choose to put yourself first I think that's another thing that's again a universal difficulty but is especially relevant um, to autistic people trying to just get through every day is that it's okay to put yourself first and it's okay if your friends want to hang out and you have to say no because you've spent the whole day in the office surrounded by noisy people and you just need a break or it's okay to say to somebody when something seems really obvious, I'm sorry, I don't understand. You're going to have to take me right back and start again. Yeah. Um, Because I think especially as an adult, that is a really difficult conversation to have. Yeah, of course. When people look at you and they're like, you're a full-grown person, you've got (laughs) significant life experience. How can you not buy a ticket to get on the bus? And it's like, because nobody's ever shown me. Yeah, everyone's always assumed that I know how to. This is just an example, but I mean, it's a good one because as a teenager, and my parents will vouch for this, I refused to go on the bus anywhere. And I grew up in a rural market town, so the bus was the only way that I was going to get anywhere. So I didn't go anywhere because I never wanted to get on the bus because that experience of buying a ticket, sitting on the bus, knowing when to get off knowing what to say to the bus driver as you get off the bus. Like it's these tiny, tiny things that people are like, well, either they say it doesn't matter or they say it's obvious. And neither of those answers are sufficient for an autistic brain to be able to cope with doing that thing. Yeah. And it's so interesting as you're talking about like the journey of going, like, you know, buying the ticket, sitting down. I'm thinking like, oh, how good would it be just to go on a day out on a bus? I'm like, oh, how nice would that be? 
I'm like, oh, I love a good chat with a bus driver. Get my ticket, sit down, see who sat next to me. Maybe I'll listen to some music, just poodle along. Like, oh, I'll get off here because I fancy it. I'm like, oh, how nice would that be? And then I'm like, oh, that is not everyone's experience. <laughs> no, no, I'm very envious. That sounds like you have a good relationship with buses. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I like to think that through any form of hardship, if you're able to look back and pick out a positive attribute about yourself, you've probably learned something from that experience. And that is not to say that all hardships are learning curves, but nine times out of 10, they can be. Mm. And I was wondering for you, if you've been through hardship or like you said, you found childhood quite difficult. Have you been able to look back at that time and actually pull out a positive attribute about yourself that upon reflection, you're incredibly proud of? Wow, that's a big one. <laughs> it's a good question, isn't it? It's and a the great reason I ask question. it is because as disabled people, we're not often given the chance to look back at what we've done and celebrate it because either your life is about pushing forward and fighting because you're fighting for your own rights, you're fighting for your own needs, or it's kind of given that you will just do something without people realizing the process that, that it takes for you to be able to do something that is different and you adapt to what you know the non-disabled community would would do or how they would do it so being able to look back and reflect as disabled people about positives is kind of revolutionary and it almost in my eyes it's a massive like f you to society to be like actually we're just as brilliant as you are and we can recognize that as well yeah do you know what I think given the kind of themes that we've been talking about today one of the things that springs to mind is that I finished all of my education so and again I think I don't want to kind of people look at intelligent people academically intelligent people and they're like well obviously you were going to finish your education because you're really smart and Uh you know it was easy for you you breezed through it and it's yeah "Mm, no um but I think I want to turn that narrative on its head and say, despite the fact that I am academically intelligent and despite the fact that I got A's and A stars, it doesn't mean that it wasn't an incredibly difficult journey to get there. Yeah. And, you know, as I mentioned before, I missed months of my GCSEs. I also missed months of my A-levels. and I also missed months of my first degree because that whole time, I didn't have a diagnosis. I didn't even have an inkling that I was autistic. I didn't have any of the coping mechanisms or strategies I needed to be able to thrive. Um, And yet I didn't drop out. I didn't leave. Uh And I'm not saying that anybody who feels that they have to take that step has done any less. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me personally, I am proud that I didn't have to do that. That I did. It's not even that I didn't have to do that. It's that I chose not to, and I chose yeah. to keep going. Um, and despite the fact, and I think this in itself is a revolutionary concept. Most of your education has absolutely zero bearing on what you do with the rest of your life. I just want to say that in the public sphere because there are too many educational institutions who try and tell you from primary school that the grades you get in school are going to determine whether you're a successful human or not. And it's bullshit. It is absolute nonsense. I think that's probably why, like myself in school, I knew from like, I've always been the way that I am now, but I knew from a really young age that actually 
geography was never going to help me in like the wider sense of the world. And I knew that like, I know to be fair, I loved religious studies. I found it very interesting because I, f- I find the way that other people's minds work fascinating. But I always, I always sat at the middle of school. Like I wasn't a massive top achiever, and but I also wasn't bottom. But it's because innately I knew that this was never going to help me when I left school, like I knew for, for a fact that going into maths and learning how to work out the circumference of the circle was never going to help me do taxes. It was never going to help me buy a house. It was never going to help me just be an adult. And I, I remember being sat in so many classes being like, it's fascinating, interesting stuff. Don't get me wrong. This is not actually going to help me. And like, you know, this, it's so right. Your education whilst during that period of time it kind of is the most important thing in your life because there is nothing really else that you do yeah but actually it doesn't determine whether or not you're going to be a success outside of the school environment and also recognize that actually the school environment once you leave education is actually an incredibly bizarre concept Mm. like think about your adult life when was the last time you sat down with a room full of people who were all of similar age to you being told to be quiet and write notes about a paragraph of literature that actually some guy or woman in their brain made up. That was like my take on English. I was like, what? Like, I don't get me wrong. What he said is wonderful, like really groundbreaking stuff. But this is a really bizarre way to be learning about it, sitting in a classroom, trying to write notes about it when all of our notes are going to be different and all of it's completely subjective. And five years down the line, it'll all be in the bin. Like, you will never see those notes again. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think looking back on it from from my own perspective, I, I wish that I could have followed that mindset through because like you, I was in classes recognizing that it was all interesting, but essentially useless yeah. for yeah. a successful adult life. Um, but because academics was the only place I was getting validated yeah (laughs) because everywhere else I was weird and I was bullied and whatever else it might have been I made it like I pushed myself and I made it so that that was all that was important to me was doing well at school and getting good grades and I think that if I'd chilled out a bit um and gone you know as you said being in the middle of the class is not necessarily about lack of talent it's about recognizing the situation that you've been put in and the utility of that situation to you if I could have let go of that need for external validation which I was at 12 like I was never going to do that but if I could have done that would have led to a completely different school experience because maybe I would have allowed myself to focus on things that I truly cared about, or I would have invested my time in things that made me happy. Yeah. It's honestly, when you look back at school, it's, it's such a wild experience to look back on. I always, yeah. I always, I have a really, really, really strong memory of like a deputy head of one of the schools that I was at and we were talking about exams. And I remember just being like, what's the point in an exam? Like, I don't, I can't understand why do I need to take this because some random is going to mark it and tell me whether I'm good or bad. Like I innately know that I'm a good person and I know that I'm like intelligent. I know that I could like fend for myself. So why is it important? And I remember this deputy like looking at being me and being like, Brooke, these are all completely valid points and I don't have a comeback for it. So just do what you will with that information. And I was like, okay. 
And that's the problem because then I felt like I was a bit superior and I was like, I know something everybody else doesn't know. And that was that was probably a downfall for me. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. That deputy head is a top class human being. I appreciate that honesty. And you yeah. know, as a, as a little side tangent, that's another issue that I have with growing up neurodivergent is that we just need to understand the purpose of doing something to be able to Uh do it um and adults going because I said so is is gonna lead to meltdowns and tantrums yeah because that that doesn't compute because I said so is not a reason (laughs) I also agree with that like as someone who needs well I don't need to understand how process works but like I need to be able to see the end result. It's like, why should I get an A in my geography test? I know that I'm innately a good person. I know that I'm able to wander around the planet and probably be quite okay. Why do I need to know about an Oxbow Lake? Didn't really understand that. But I completely, like, I completely agree with your point that someone just being like, because you need to. I was like, uh, no. It doesn't work like that. No, but then I was also really gobby. So <laughs> it's part and parcel of me and my big mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to sit in a classroom with you at school just to just to observe the chaos. So it's really funny. I like obviously part and parcel of what I do is CrossFit. And like a friend of mine who also happens to be a coach is like, I avoid it when you book onto my classes because you just bring chaos. I was like, thank you so much. (laughs) I mean, having done a little bit of CrossFit in my time, I feel like you need chaos to get through. Like, yeah. I think yeah. probably a very positive thing to bring to a CrossFit class. You know what? I accept it. Like, I'm a chaotic person. My energy is a bit like a storm in a teacup. And I'm like, I'm small enough to like refer to myself as a teacup as well. I'm basically the same size as a borrower. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah. that's the thing. That's the thing that we've been talking about. And, you know, the advice that I gave is just be true to yourself and just do what feels right for you you know as long as you're not hurting anybody or causing any damage then be weird be quirky be eccentric be a storm in a teacup because that's who you are and you know what's really interesting is I think part of the reason that I am so upfront and so like I can be brutally honest and like quite no bullshit a lot of that is down to the fact that I've always known that I'm disabled and I've always known that there is, if I need help, I need to ask for it because nobody's going to necessarily give it to me if I can't explain the reasons as to why I need help or yeah, all of this kind of thing. And I'm, in my head, I'm wondering, I'm thinking like, I wonder if Ali got her diagnosis a bit earlier in life, if she would also be the same, because I think you are very who you are. And had you, maybe you had that diagnosis, Ali, you'd be even more of who you are just for like a longer period of time. Exactly. Like I feel like I am on that journey. I'm definitely getting to the point where I am that person. Like part of the reason why I wrote the book was because the difficulty of accessing support is knowing what to ask for and having the confidence to ask for it. And as you said, as somebody who has grown up always knowing that you're disabled and knowing that you're going to have to ask those questions. Yeah. You, you progress through that journey quicker. Um, not necessarily quicker, but, you know, you get there quicker, let's say. Yeah. Um, and you are able to, to have that confidence because you have no other choice. Yeah. Whereas for a lot of people 
who get these late diagnoses, who spent all their lives thinking there's something wrong with me and nothing can be done to fix it and nobody wants to help me. Um, you're absolutely right that you don't get that mindset. You don't develop yeah. that mindset. Um, and, you know, it's been, um, it's coming up four years since I got my diagnosis. And I would definitely say that I'm at the point now where if it was myself or somebody else who needed something that wasn't being offered, I would literally just stand up in the middle of the room and go, excuse me. Yeah, I need this. What is going on? Yeah. And I love that for you because I think it will develop even stronger as time goes yes. on. And that's like, it's kind, of, it's kind of wonderful to be like the outspoken person. Like I do revel in it quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I would highly recommend it. Like, honestly, I think that by the time I'm, you know, some people have a midlife crisis. I think I'm going to have midlife empowerment and I'm just going to become oh, really kick-ass. I love that. That's like... I think you should maybe trademark that because I think someone's <laughs> I only have one final question for you, Ali, and I think I know the answer to it, but I'm still going to ask it anyway. And that is, Ali, are you disabled and proud? 100%. And I really hope that listening, not just to this conversation, but the other conversations that you've had on the podcast are helping other people to also say, they're disabled and proud because you are not a problem. You are not broken and you are not something to be fixed. You are who you are and you need to share that with the world um, and be proud of yourself. Exactly that. Exactly that. And that's the whole reason that this podcast was brought about because I didn't realize that being confident with your disability was not necessarily the norm because it's always who I've been. And it wasn't until I had a couple of conversations with people who were disabled and weren't necessarily happy about it, that it kind of revolutionized my brain. (laughs) And I just want to say thank you so much for being on this because what you've spoken about today has been really enlightening for someone who isn't neurodivergent. Because how I think and how you think, as we've said multiple times already, is very different. But you being able to explain as to why is really beneficial for someone like me who wants to help other people who are neurodivergent. But I don't necessarily know the best way to do it. So now I feel at least if I can explain better and I can help understand people's wants and needs, then I can become a better person to help others and like thank you so much for talking about your experience and giving your time and also talking about your book like I can't wait to read it <laughs> thank you well thank you so much for having me like I've had so much fun I love doing podcast interviews because it's just like a chat at a sleepover you know when you stay up yeah. really late and you're like I'm supposed to be asleep but also this is too good <laughs> yeah putting the world to rights as I like to think of it <laughs> Absolutely. Um, And just kind of wrapping up on what you just said, I think for anybody who is wondering, you know, how can I be a better support to a neurodivergent person? The answer is communication. It is genuinely just explain your perspective, because that's the other thing. We've got no idea what's going on in your brains and your brains are baffling us as well. So two way communication is so important to be able to find that meet in the middle place um that's really going to make the difference oh well like I said thank you so much for giving me the time to being on the pod today I've loved it and 
I can't wait to read your book. I'm so excited for you. So excited. Oh, thank you. I can't, I'm mildly terrified for people to read my book, but excited as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for coming on and we'll speak soon. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Disabled and Proud. If you've enjoyed the show, then please give it some love by leaving us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. It really helps us to reach more and more people each week. Plus, if you've got a particular highlight, then I'd absolutely love to hear it. Tag me on your Insta stories at Disabled and Proud Podcast.